Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast on classical stuff. Shocker. <laughs> that you should know. <laughs> okay. Um, we are three guys that work at a classical school in Austin, Texas. That school is called Veritas Academy. We are all teachers and educators of children. My name is Graham Donaldson, and I teach English literature and rhetoric, and I am here with my colleague, A.J. Hannenberg. Me? Who also teaches English and rhetoric. Yep. And then I'm, and then we are also joined by Thomas Fletcher Magby, hello, who is a teacher of leadership as well as the director and dean of our student life. Say director of fun. That's what you call the me director for a long of, time. Fun. The yeah. of fun. The ombudsman. The ombudsman of fun. Ombudsman of fun. Sorry, I apologize. Um, and today we are going to be learning about. I have no idea what we're learning about. <laughs> Magby. This, this is how I feel like most episodes start when I do the intro. Also, so this makes me feel better. I'm going to be talking about a fellow named uh, James Shaw, Father James Shaw. Um, we have spoken about him. Bef- Shaw, like S C H A L L. So we have talked about him before. He wrote an essay that uh, we did an episode on a while ago. I don't remember what number on the benefits of illiteracy. And if you try and look up that episode, the title is like misspelled ironically and funly. So you might have trouble finding it, but it's there. The benefits of illiteracy. We also talked about a book called Leisure or Leisure, if you're pretentious, mm. uh, by uh, Joseph. Shots fired. Or Joseph, if you're pretentious. <laughs> and uh, uh, I believe Father Shaw wrote wrote the intro to uh, uh, Peeper's Leisure. So this man is a writer of intros. He's a writer of intros. He just writes the best intros. And so let's read some of those. He's intros like that together. voice in a in a world where. <laughs> oh man, I wish he's he did. that guy for the oh literary gosh, community. I wish I'd be so okay with that. He so he wrote a number of intros, but that's not why we're talking. He also wrote essays. So the benefits of illiteracy was an essay. He is or i guess was so the reason we're doing an episode right now is that he uh, died somewhat recently on april 17th so during oh. holy week of 2018 or 2019 sorry the year, oh, the year is 2019 so like just a few weeks ago yeah so as of so. when we're recording this it's about three weeks ago as Aww. of when you're hearing this it'll be about a month and a half ago um so he wrote 30 some odd books and then um wrote intros to a number of them he's the reason that some of these books were put back into um What's it called? Like they were printed again. The reason they were printed again is that he, yeah, they were republished on his like recommendation or him seeking these books out. Uh, we in the, in our emails often get some form of the question of why we care about classical education or why we, um, teach at a classical school or some version of that. And my answer is tied deeply to the writings and the thoughts of father Shaw. So this is sort of a, anyway, this. That's why we're talking about him today. Is this a Thomas Magby expose? I don't know. Isn't that expose mean there are negatives? Oh, is this a Thomas Magby con, uh, confessional? Tell all? Tell all? No. Tell, sure. Um. I will talk more about myself than I really want to, and then we will talk about the ideas of <laughs> James Shaw himself. So my version of why I'm on this podcast right now is that sometime around the summer of 2013, I came across the writings of Mortimer Adler. He's another dude that we've talked about before. So if you hear anything about great books of the Western world put on by Encyclopedia Britannica or put out by Encyclopedia Britannica, that is Mortimer Adler. He also wrote a book called how to read a book, which we've done an episode on. It is a very good book. I implore it to you. So sometime around then I came across those writings of Mortimer Adler and most of Adler's project is to put forward the best of the Western canon to, I mean, to get people to read it when you get down to it. He, Mortimer Adler eventually came up with this thing, which we talked about a few episodes ago in passing the Paideia project. And his goal was to get these great works of the Western world into American schools, into schools in the Western world so that we would uh, continue that cultural heritage. Uh, and I find his, I found his writing super compelling in 2013. Uh, this is when I was in business school and I was not being fed the like, uh, creme de la creme of, uh, Western culture. They don't do Western canon in business school. No, they don't do much in the way huh. of like literature in business school. So <laughs> who'd have thunk? Yeah. Who'd have thunk? Uh, and anyway, it was not great. Around the fall of 2015, I stumbled upon Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. This is while while I was going through a eight-week training um, for my previous employer. And I was just so, like, mad that, like, all of these awesome ideas were in this book. And I'd never been exposed to it up until study on my own uh, post, like, graduate school. Like, there were just such clear teachings on 
right and wrong, how to live, the purpose of life, um, politics, just everything in this book. I was just so mad that like, this is the first time I was coming across this. Uh, it's the same way I felt in reading Mortimer Adler that like everyone should know this stuff. And it is absurd to me that they don't. So this is what, uh, it's like that story, um, in the old Testament. What is it? The King Hezekiah, when they discover, yeah. discover the law again and he tears his clothes, he just starts reading it and starts, cause he starts clothes. reading yeah. it and tears he's his like, clothes what? because he's yeah. like, you guys, yeah. it was here all along. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't know it. Mm-hmm. So that's what the ethics felt like to me. Um, so at some point between then and the following summer, I started hearing about this Father Shaw dude through the writing through writings in First Things. He was heavily mm. referenced there. Mm-hmm. First Things, Graham, you're a reader of First Things. Yeah. How, how should I describe First Things? It is the foremost <laughs> journal on religion in America or something like that. It's entitled First Things, not yeah. Second Things. Um, for the title being that we should you know, care about the first things first. It, it ordered loves caring about you know, putting God and... and, and uh, uh, above the secondary things of life, yep. like politics and economy and money and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it's first things is an, uh, educational institute institute. What? Oh, most influential journal of religion and public life is their tagline. And it rings true. It's a great publication, which I implore to you all. But I first came across the, the writings or the quotes rather, um, Kishal himself was not writing for first things, but they, anyway, he, uh, the website that Shaw posted on regularly for, I think it must have been 20 years is uh, the Catholic thing is the name of the the website that he would post to if you've you ever been there anyway. So came across him sometime between 2015 and 2016, but had never actually gone into um, his books themselves uh, on May 2nd, May 2nd, 2016, the art of manliness put out a podcast on the joys and travails of thinking, which is an, it's not an interview. They sent us a list of questions to father Shaw and it was him answering those questions. Cool. So it's only him, only him talking. And it is an excellent episode. Um, I often get made fun of for listening to podcasts at two times speed. This is like the one that if you're going to listen to, I, I think you can only make it through at two times speed. Um, he was, I mean, he, anyway, he, was, he is slow in answering his questions. He is thoughtful in answering his questions, but the, the art of manliness podcast and just website has gotten more classical and and as years have gone by i i wonder if like mckay brett is his name brett mckay brett mckay yeah has somehow either discovered it or if there's like a classical school in his neighborhood because there's been lots of sort of articles recently just about like classical education yep. and and training your kids in the old ways it just made me wonder if um or clearly we've had an influence <laughs> there it is yeah. well i think so not that i Google us all the time, but in one of my recent Google sprees, I believe you, Graham. You got to go way down. Like you got to, you know, go to like Google search page six before you, <laughs> if you find anything. Well, but I think at some point you tweeted at Art of Manliness. I, so I definitely clearly, did. Yeah, that's what started all of this. Is oh, what there I'm you to go. Say. Good. So you're having an impact in the world. So <laughs> did they tweet back? No. no. So the way <laughs> no. Thomas should have phrased that was at some point uh, Graham replied. was uh, Graham's tweet was ignored by the Art of Manliness. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't sound. You good hollered into the void. Yeah, exactly. naturally. Yeah, Twitter. That, which is called Twitter. Exactly. So it is an excellent episode. I highly recommend it to you. You will get a much further exploration of Father Shaw's life. I'll give a little bit at the end of all this, but I'm focused on myself right now. So ha. So uh, so these dates from here on out, I was able just to like pull. You know, this maybe should terrify listeners and you all should make fun of me for this. I was able to like look up the date that this podcast went up. And I remember it being like really influential to me. This is before I was at Veritas. Uh, I was then able to go to my Amazon search history and find out what, uh, or um, order history and find all the books that I bought, like as a result of this podcast immediately after. Is this well, weird that all when historians are writing the biography of you yes, in future years? I mean, this, these are going to be they will have tools. Access to. Yes, exactly. yeah, this, they'll be piecing together all sorts of narratives. Naturally. Good, naturally. Uh, so May second is when this episode gets posted, and um, on so. He, on the joys and travails of thinking is the, is the topic of it. Um, he is discussing his book. I believe the book is called the life of the mind. And I guess there, you know, again, I recommend to you, you just listen to it for yourself and come up with your own takeaway of what the episode is about, but some level it's about the, about what life is for and some answer to what life is for is the intellectual life is that we as humans have capacities that are available to us that are only tested and tried. If we push, to what we're capable of in one form of that pushing takes an intellectual look of reading things that are above our level learning from teachers who come before us. And then there is a, there's a physical side to it too, of like, um, you know, humans are not just, um, spirit, 
but one asks like anyway so yes your body matters a lot but what this episode was focused on is the mind mattering um and us being capable of expanding our mind of of us capable of learning new ideas grasping new ideas and going from there so two weeks after this uh podcast comes out i uh purchased uh, leisure or leisure by peeper by joseph or yosef and a guide for the perplexed which is another book that mm. we've talked about on this podcast. so what am i trying the, the point i'm trying to make through all of this is that father shawl had a huge influence on i guess my care of classical education but then also i mean a guide for the perplexed is like a book about how to understand the world around us um so father shawl's recommendations have had huge influence on me my thinking um and really what i talk about on this podcast here Shortly after that, I actually finally bought a book by Father Shaw, Student's Guide to Liberal Learning, which is a, um, a book that I've returned to a few times since. And then also The Intellectual Life, which is a book I lent to Graham. And following How long ago? You know, I was going to say, well, in the same way that you lent me uh, Servile State a year ago. At some point, you guys should just join your libraries and cut out the middleman. True. Although I believe that's called moving out to the farm. So I, A, <laughs> we're not too far off. read the intellectual life and B ah, returned you. it. Yeah, yes. You are, you, are, you are superior to me. I do not, I do not have any questions about this, but intellectual life. And is, I only marked it up in pencil. Oh, did you write in it? I, I just underlined no. little things. And then I felt, then I think halfway through, I felt guilty. And then I stopped. I think the accumulated marginalia in a book is incredibly valuable. Oh, I, I encourage yeah. people who read my books to mark in it. I've thought, I've thought about this of like certain books that have been most influential to me, like starting uh, a list on the front and just having people write in mm. like, you know, so I read it first and I read it on this date and then give it to the next person and then they add mm-hmm. their name, but like write in a different color so you can kind of see mm-hmm. all the different right. markings in it. I think I would like that, especially for a book like The Intellectual Life in which is worthy of its own episode at some point. Uh, Sir Leonge, the author of The Intellectual Life is facing the question of most people are not going to become monks. Like most people are going to have a regular job, but some piece of what it is to be liberally educated is to free your mind by like exposing yourself to new ideas or the richness of the history that comes before you, those ideas. So how do you do that? How do you both have an active life, but also have an active mental life? And I think he has some really thoughtful answers to that. I mean, he's very charming in that he assumes that everybody is going has this sort of intellectual project that they are all are are all wanting to um, continue in, and he's giving sort of hints and tricks and frameworks for how one can continue that intellectual project, even if it's going to have no bearing on like your material success yep. in the marketplace or just whatever. Just for the sake of doing the thing. Um, just for the sake of doing the thing. Yeah. It's, great, it's a great little book. So. Yeah, as one I'm sure we'll return to later. But again, referenced, uh, recommended by Father Shaw. And then if I'm not mistaken, I think he did an intro to that one as well. <laughs> I know, I'm, you're, no, you're noticing a trend right here. Um, followed up on that, just in the line of classical education with the, the, the well-educated mind, so Susan Weisbauer. Another Shaw recommended book, A General Theory of Authority by Eve Simone. I, I'm sure someone's going to tell me I mispronounced that. And then a few months after that, I came to Veritas. Um, so Father Shaw was hugely influential to me in understanding the importance of the ideas that come before us and desiring to pass those on to the next generation. So through education. So the, oh, sorry, to tell you more about him himself and not just talk about blather on about me. This is from the first things article when Father Shaw passed. So April 17th, um, on Father Shaw. He learned these values of hard work, fraternal respect, and scholarship in his youth. Raised in Iowa public schools, he served from 1946 to 1947 in the U.S. Army after high school, and then joined the California Jesuits in 1948. Shaw learned a B.A. from Santa Clara University, an M.A. in philosophy from Gonzaga University, there you go, an M.A. in sacred theology from Santa Clara University, and a Ph.D. in political theory from Georgetown University in the course of his Jesuit formation. Ordained a priest in 1963, he taught social sciences at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome from 1964 to 1977, and concurrently taught in the government department of the University of San Francisco from 1968 to 1977, before moving to Georgetown. And then he was he taught at, in Georgetown essentially from 1977 until 2012, I think. And then he was in a retirement house from 2012 until 2019. The U.S. government, the Vatican, and various Catholic institutions sought him out for ser- sought him out for service on committees and boards during his long career. Um, and I have another quote I'll read at the end. Okay, so uh, there, as in most things, the best way to understand why this guy is great is to read some of his writing and discuss some of his ideas. So we will be in one of his 
earlier works, another sort of learning. I think it came out in the 80s. I'm trying to look for the date in here. 88 sounds right, but I might have made that up. Um, so he, most of his writing are introductions to other books, I guess is my, anyway. But most of his own writing is essays. And then his books are then collections of those essays. And so his ideas will develop around a theme as he goes through these essays, which I guess is how all books of essays work. Um, yeah, this book came out in 1988. It was not his first book. He had been writing since 1967. Um, but I think this is the earliest that I have read of his, just looking through the list. And I think I said this before, but he wrote like 30 books. So good guy. Okay. 1988. So his, this part one that we'll be talking about here is called, so you're still perplexed even in college. A, we'll come back to this a few times, but Charles has this like just joyful way of approaching these complicated topics. And I think he's probably most well-known, I don't know, whatever. A thing he is known for is putting these like really goofy lists of books to read at the end of each of his chapters. And he gives them really funny titles. Among the best of them is Shaw's unlikely list of books to keep sane by selected for those to whom making sense is a prior consideration, but a minority opinion. It's one of my favorite ones. <laughs> okay. So uh, let's explore some of his ideas and then I'll do some reading of the guy himself. So the part one is, so the name of the book, another sort of learning and the subtitle is selected contrary essays on how to find how finally to acquire an education while still in college or anywhere else containing some belated advice about how to employ your, le your leisure or leisure time when ultimate questions remain perplexing in spite of your highest earned academic degree together with sundry book lists nowhere else in captivity to be found. That's the subtitle. That is the subtitle. <laughs> it's the entire subtitle. <laughs> Isn't he wonderful? I wonder how his publisher signed off on that. In the preface, he talks about how the publisher was not exactly crazy about it. Oh, really? Yeah, he talks about that. Okay, so the uh, the topic we'll be focused on here is, so you're still perplexed even in college. So we'll make it through probably four of these essays or the ideas in them because they're all kind of short. So name of the book is Another Sort of Learning. The first essay is Another Sort of Learning. So I don't know why I thought AJ would appreciate this especially, but in his preface, his opening quote is from Mad Magazine. Does that is that something you appreciate? That makes me happy. Okay, good. Okay, so in, he's, he's not snooty. Is, is in what my colleges, yeah. I I think that's important. It's yeah. easy to, to, as you get smarter, to let that knowledge puff you up and make you think you're more important than you really are. Yes. In my in the philosophy department at Whitworth College, and this is another reason I love Whitworth College so much. Everyone should go there. It's forever <laughs> wow, amazing. Okay. Forever. Okay. It's like going to college at summer camp, uh, but. Are if you got into the philosophy department as a teacher, they got you a year's subscription to what is it? The World News, Weekly World News. It was the one that oh, the always talks about one? aliens. The, yeah, and yeah. It's a tabloid. The Bat Kid. Yeah, yeah, like the Bat Kid, and had yeah, it's, it's like National Enquirer or something like totally like it's. I think they were some of the first ones that are like the Earth is really flat. Like <laughs> okay, it was, it's great. those folks. And so, just so you wouldn't take yourself too seriously, too seriously. you got a year subscription of it, and I that's, that's good. Just makes me so happy. Yeah, that's another thing. Even in the 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 article in First Things, they talk about how Father Shaw would bring in. Uh, I think Peanuts was his favorite cartoon, but he would quote the comic the comic section of his like local paper in giving his essays. <laughs> so he just he had a good sense of humor. Yeah, shout out to uh, Mr. Baird. Good job being a professor. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought you were talking about. If he's listening, yeah. I know he's I'm not. Sure he, oh, well, I wish he was. So just because this got brought up and yet I write this with a certain amount of amusement as the subtitle of this endeavor hints, because I know how pretentious our public and academic life can be, even how pretentious it is for me to suggest that I myself know something of the highest things. Most folks will think this book on another sort of learning to be an odd sort of thing. And it is, but its oddness, I believe arises from its uniqueness, from its endeavor to suggest that we ought, as Aristotle told us to spend our best time on those higher divine things that define what we are about in our lives. So, what a guy. Okay, so he's talking about another sort of learning. So I'm going to start by doing a thing that you're not supposed to do in teaching, and it's guess what's inside my head. So um, another sort of learning. He is writing this to college students. Does anyone want to take a swing at what the other sort of learning is if he's writing this to college students? Like experience in the world? Yeah, I was going to say experiential. That would be a good one. He – this um, – the – what is – fundamentally talking about is education outside of formal education. Mm. That is the other sort of learning. And in fact, is what he would identify as the most important form of learning is what you choose to study on your own. So mm. colleges can put in front of you or high schools. We teach in high school. Mm -hmm. You can put certain books in front of students. You can put certain ideas in front of students. You can force them to read through those books. But 
ultimately you can't be certain that they absorb anything from those books. And at some point they have to make the choice to educate themselves. They choose what to spend their time on. All Mm -hmm. we can do is offer a classical education. Yeah. And so then what is most important is that other sort of learning. It it ends up being an ode to used bookstores, which is very lovely. He he talks about the uh, architecture of one that he loved going to while he was, or I guess he's still at Georgetown during this, but uh, a one near the university that he loved to go to. He talks about the architecture, the the smell of certain sections, um, how it's a place that he loves to be. Um, this guy sounds like a nerd. He is a nerd, <laughs> but he's like a relatable. So yeah, at some point, okay, the question is like, why does Thomas love this guy so much? And that's probably part of the answer is that he's a nerd and so am I. And so he made a successful like writing career out of being a nerd. So Loves the smell of... Old used books. bookstores? You don't? Yeah. Come on, man. Think about it. Yeah, I didn't say I wasn't a oh. nerd. I was just saying this guy sounds like a nerd. You are 100% correct. Okay, so that's so it's an ode to used bookstores. So that's why we're able to move through these quickly. So the other sort of learning is what you choose to spend your time on. And a place where you can get those ideas is the used bookstore. Here, this is written in 1988. This is pre-ebook. He ends up being okay with ebooks, but says you should probably buy books if you can. But he is sensitive to the weight and the cost. So for whatever that's worth in case anyone was looking for father Shaw to bless your Kindle addiction. Okay. So this moves into chapter two. Why read? Does anyone have a good answer for why anyone should read? So you can get rich. Oh, that's okay. He talks in the, in the first, you're being sarcastic, but in the first chapter, I'm standing power, here in baby. front of my Lamborghinis, but you know <laughs> what I love the most? Knowledge. Books. That's from an actual, books. remember that guy? Isn't that an actual video? Yeah, it was, yeah. A, it was, a, it was, a, it was on video. YouTube. That's so I'm most proud of these books behind me because I read them all. But didn't he, didn't he rent the Lamborghini? Wasn't that the well, whole thing? Oh, well, probably. Oh, I thought that, anyway. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't remember. That's just like highly leveraged or like, I don't know, like multi-level marketing scheme or some sort of scam or something. Multi-level marketing is not a scam. Oh, How sorry. dare you? That's not. I, it probably is. Anyway, whatever. Why am I always defending capitalism on this podcast? It's an upside-down funnel system. It's not a pyramid. <laughs> Definitely not a Ponzi. It's an upside-down pyramid. The music is played, and then when the music stops, whoever's holding the product is going to lose. Isn't that from a TV show where he like draws it? He's like, is that the office? Where it's like, it's totally not a pyramid scheme. Look, you start at the bottom, and then it, it's not the office. Yeah. What? Oh, is it from a show we can't reference on yeah, this? Yeah, okay, it is great. from a show we can't reference Let's say on it's this. from the office so that we can reference it. <laughs> it's upside down funnel system. <laughs> it's sunny outside. Okay. All right. Thank you. Any other? In what city? Okay. What other um, answers do we have other than to be rich and to buy Lamborghinis? Why should we read? Uh, boredom. Oh, boredom, so to be entertained? Yeah. That's a fine answer. I'm okay with that. To curiosity? Curiosity is a good answer. Isn't, are we, I mean, I'm assuming the answer is to learn? Well, that seems like a good one. Yeah, that's, that's, I guess the, yeah, that's what Shaw would say. So that's in a higher sense, liberality is freeing ourselves from the not knowing condition. <laughs> Why are you making money? You don't get a Lamborghini out of this. Do you understand that? <laughs> yeah. You get nothing. He's like, you yes, win it's nothing. to learn. Therefore money. <laughs> yeah. Question mark, question mark. You get profit. to continue being on the podcast. That's all. Okay. All year. Thus in a higher sense, liberality is freeing ourselves from the not knowing condition so that we come to know what is. And all knowledge in some basic sense is interesting. Chesterton's remark that there are no interesting subjects, only uninterested people has its profound point. To be liberal in this sense means to be free, not free to create a world that does not exist or one that does not relate to us, but free to be able to take within ourselves into our knowledge what is there, what is. You know how hard it is to convince students that I'm trying to make them more free? <laughs> I have given I have given that lecture to ninth graders a few times, right? That yep. the, a liberal education is one that is intended to free you. And they're yep. like, um, but calculus <laughs> or <laughs> but biology or whatever that they're not yeah. particularly enjoying at that moment or... Yeah. Convincing them that Latin is worth studying is a specifically difficult task. Youth is wasted on the young. But in what way? So I'm trying to, so how would you, okay, why should someone learn Latin? Like how would, how would you answer that question? Uh, so partially because, well, their, their main beef is that it's difficult and when are they going to use it? Well, I, I would say that it, partially prepares you to learn a gazillion other languages Mm -hmm. also based on Latin. I would say that when you go to Rome, you can read all the stuff that's written in Latin. I would say that you can become a part of the intellectual conversation in the medieval period, which was conducted almost entirely in Latin. You can read stuff in its original language, which, I mean, same reason you learn any other thing. The only, yeah, the only thing you don't get from learning Latin is active conversation with a 
people group that currently speaks it. But there are like conversational Latin groups. Isn't that it's true? Isn't that crazy? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's so just that, that, that one piece missing. But every every other benefit you get from a language is conferred by Latin, except more so because scientific discourse is often hmm. in Latin, like yeah. scientific names, the basis for a lot of the words that we have. Like there's so many reasons to learn Latin you know, reading Julius Caesar, reading Ovid in his original, like all that's like all those reasons. Yeah. May I, and to impress the opposite sex. Like, why do okay, we do anything? By, just so this is back to last week's episode where it's all just about impressing other people. Paris New Latin. Wait, <laughs> wait, uh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't sound quite right. Just Greek. Yeah. So let's, so I think Shaw gets at a piece of this answer of why to learn these things. The whole purpose of learning is to be in a situation wherein we are not always learners, but those who have learned, those capable of standing on their own, be it in prudence or in wisdom, so that we are, in a sense, independent. This is what we look for and what we need to be in a position to find out how to be. Yet, however adult or mature or learned we might become, we will remain receivers of what is. Reading, to go back to our topic, will, for the most will foremost be the guide to what is. Why read? Because we are given more than we are. I think that can be some piece of the answer to why study other languages, mm-hmm. that you then get access to more experiences to learn from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't typically learn a language for itself, like languages for communicating. And I mean, in a language, there, there's all this culture bound up in the way that the language is actually even structured and created and if you think in Latin, you're going to approach problems differently than you think in English. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so and even then you'll understand English better because our grammar is mm-hmm. based on their grammar. That's what I, I usually, a foreign language teaches like a clarity of thought because you need to know exactly what you're trying to say to translate it into another language. Like mm-hmm. take, for example, names, mm-hmm. right? Like in Latin, someone's proper name will change based mm-hmm. on the case, mm-hmm. based on its part of speech. In English, our names don't change. So even then, like... That breaks down the idea of the name being the the signifier of the identity. So, like you know, you have a student in class, and if some if if someone calls them a nickname that they don't like, mm-hmm. um, they'll say like, "I saw my name. My name is X." But in Latin, you have a na- your name is changing based on the parts of speech. So, if you grew up speaking Latin, you wouldn't have the same kind of attachment to the to the uh, the sort of Your immovability of the name, right? Mm-hmm. So, you, right, that's just a stupid example, but there's an example of just like how language can have you think about things differently. Yeah, I, I sometimes get comments about an episode from a long time ago about translation, mm. wherein the point of that episode <clears throat> was that once you translate a work, that new translation becomes a work unto itself. Yeah. And so then it is worth both reading the original and the new work. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just, that's not the same point as saying... Latin's not worth learning because I don't believe that there is value in reading the original work, but there's also value in reading the English translation of that work. It is a classic in its own right. If translated well, anyway, I always feel the need to say something about that. Everyone should learn Latin and Greek and anything else. Prussian. Well, uh, Russian was the one that, um, lost tools of learning said that those are like the only three languages worth learning. Really? Isn't that weird? Yeah. So Latin or Greek or Russian, if you must, it's some, something like that. I figure, I figure I would learn Russian just so I could yell in Russian. It would be intimidating. It would be intimidating. I feel like I should learn one language for every activity I want to have. If I'm, if I'm so cooking is, or okay. trying to woo someone, maybe Italian. Uh-huh. Don't, don't get it mixed up. You don't want to like woo someone in German by mistake. Yeah. Because <laughs> you sound and then angry the whole time. French if I'm cooking uh-huh. or am I, if I'm sick. Uh-huh. Uh, and then Russian for yelling. This is, sounds like a good idea. Okay. So uh, where are we right now? So whole part is written to those who are still looking to get some type of education, even though they've had a formal education through college, which is, I think listener, you probably find yourself in this situation. If you're listening to a podcast, like classical stuff, you should know. So another sort of learning, we must continue our learning beyond just the formal education we've gotten through high school or college. Why read? Because it, um, we are given more than we are. We can learn from more than just our single experience. And the more languages we learn, the more we can learn even outside of that. Okay. Chapter three is one that I think you'll love the the title of because it's interesting. Okay. So chapter three, uh, what a student owes his teacher. So this is a fun one for what we're building up to on these topics. So we've gone through, uh, yeah, education, why read? And then what a student owes his teacher. When you hear that, what is a, what do you think a student owes his teacher? I mean, it's the same answer as why you read. 
money. money. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, good. Uh, a student owes his teacher money. Okay, good. I like you this. You hear that, ninth graders? <laughs> yeah, pay up. Yeah. You listening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Money. This is terrifying. <laughs> um... Uh, you know, I think How often do te- students th- offer you bribes to like not take quizzes? It's pretty regularly, yeah. actually. Yeah, good. I've taken bribes before. Well, I, uh, I feel like taking the bribe is very different from actually giving them the thing they want. Or you, you also don't. Oh, I well, it, I, I'm thinking of one instance where a kid wanted to. He was out of grace passes, which in our school means that you can kind of like turn in homework late. Yeah, and he had late homework to turn in, and he said, "Look, I'm out of grace passes, but in return, I will give you a keychain with my face on it." With the student's face or with your face? With his face. Oh, and you took that? And I took it, and okay. it's hilarious. Okay. I think he has, like, frosted tips, and there's, like, stars sparkling in the background. It's a fantastic picture. It's pretty hilarious. Yeah, it's great. And I 100% took pass. that bribe and let him turn in, turn it in late, so... And now you, you get keychains like every week. I, I accept bribes if they're, you know, if, if, it's, if I feel oh, great. ethically okay about the bribe. And that was one I Wait, felt what? ethically okay about. Okay, good. Uh, okay, so what a student owes his teacher. So uh, money, this is good. What else does a student owe his teacher? I mean, if I think about those in my life that I regard as my great teachers, I mean, an expansion, uh, you owe them sort of um, honor for you, them ushering you into something bigger. Mm-hmm. But if, if I think about what I want from my students, I don't want anything for myself. I want them to do well and yeah. to grow Live and to find life. interesting things. All right. hmm. What they owe me is their own improvement because that's what I work towards. I like that. Um, yeah, it's not to, to squander what they've been given. Yeah. Yeah, you give them the feast, you want them to like actually enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I like that. Exactly. He, in this section, pushes back against the necessity of small classrooms or personal relationships between, like friend relationships between teacher and student. Again, he's focused on the undergraduate level, but he makes the point that it matters more the material that's being taught, that great ideas, even in a large auditorium, have value. They're still great ideas. Still great ideas. Yeah. And so a student can still learn important things through a large lecture-style classroom. Or even if we think back, um, like in Greece, that like that is what teaching would have looked like. It, when Aristotle is doing the Nicomachean Ethics, when he's like speaking all that stuff, it's not just to like one or two people, it's to like a large group of people. So I, I was just curious if y'all had any thoughts on that. Trifling ideas taught by a friend are not as good oh. as big ideas taught by an enemy. This is good. But then... Or not even an enemy, but just like a, like a faceless... But anything. Yeah. 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 So, because he, he still, he talks about the greatness of the teachers who taught him, but it didn't matter that whether he knew them or not, because he didn't. But they pointed him to Aristotle, they pointed him to Plato, and that was enough. Um. But yeah, but I, I think that good ideas taught by an impersonal being are is still not as good as having a direct relation to a teacher that can help walk you through those ideas. Know what I mean? I still think that actually having re- if he had a relationship with those professors that taught those great ideas and they could teach them well and flesh them out better, and he could still have that influence in his life, it would be better. No, maybe I. It's an idea that I found interesting, especially coming from him. So I'll just read from, I'll read his words. I remember especially uh, Professor Rudolf uh, Allers at Georgetown during my graduate school days. He never actually looked at the class, but his wisdom did. I did not want to deny that sometimes. Rarely, probably, especially in the Aristotelian sense, students and teachers become friends. But at universities, students are usually too busy becoming friends with each other and changing friends, ever to worry much about crotchety old Professor Jones or Shawl, as the case may be. So I think there's something to like what's important in the classroom is the material that's being taught, not necessarily like the relationship between teacher students, especially when it's at that age, when it's, when it's in the upper form of education and, and the students are taking it more or less because they're interested in it. Yeah. Then you want, then having information, um, presented, um, well, mm-hmm. I think it, it makes a lot of sense when you're younger, you're still trying to convince the kid that they want it, that they want education. And I feel like maybe it'd be interesting of what he, th- what he thought about High the state of, or the state of, upper, of, of higher education, you know, towards the end of his life than in the eighties, even just the, to see if he had seen a shift or thought about you know, that kind of thing. Even in the eighties, he's not super positive. He, he makes We, we got to do a podcast on like the, the call, the drift of college at some point. We've done we've done one on university. I think it was the university. On the history of universities. I know. And then we, re- but it started with a um, 
what's the guy's name? It's not Bloom. No, it begins with a D. I want to say Dorkowitz, but that sounds wrong. Oh, Dershowitz. Yeah, isn't that isn't that embarrassing that I said Dorkowitz? And Dorkowitz. Here we are. Yeah, that's why I was like, they can't I bet be he right. Likes the smell of old books. Oh my gosh, he's my hero also because <laughs> only if his name is Dorkowitz. Uh, Guys, Alan Dershowitz is really he's like famous. a super big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, wrote. I mean, the the article we were reading through was like really helpful for that podcast. But sorry, that's my embarrassing memory. Anyway, so again, just to take Shaw on this point, knowing students too well can in fact be something of an impediment to learning, especially for the other students in the class. The activity of learning goes on perhaps even better when student and teacher are addressing themselves to the matter at hand, to the reason why they are in the same place at the same time, with a kind of mutual awe before something they neither created nor made. And there elsewhere, Shaw talks about he only assigns books that he himself wants to learn from. So there is Mm -hmm. some level in which he puts himself as a learner with a student, um, but he is focused primarily on. That's the only reason why I assign the books that I assign. Exactly. Which is probably like that. You want to model that for the students Mm -hmm. as well. Like this can't just be dry, boring material to you. Mm -hmm. Right. I also feel like that should be true in terms of the assignments that are given assignments that you yourself would be interested in wanting to, to do yourself. Yeah. But that's maybe another, another podcast. (laughs) I like it. Okay, so what is the teacher doing in this class? The teacher always stands, as it were, for the higher law of the best before the student, even though teaching is also the effort to pass on what can be learned, even if it be a minimum. So teacher stands as like the best of the class. Okay, so then we get to the obligate. So again, essay is what a student owes his teacher. He spends the first half of it talking about the teacher and the call on the teacher before going into then what the obligation of the student is. So student owes the teacher trust, uh, being docile, Effort and thinking. Those are the four things that he says. Um, first obligation uh, is is a moderately goodwill toward the teacher, a trust, a confidence that is willing to admit to oneself that the teacher has probably been through the matter and, unlike the student, knows where it all leads. So a trust that the teacher knows what they're doing, especially at the beginning of a semester. Is this something that would be helpful to you in your classes? Or yeah. something that you think is necessary? Kids, I think... High schoolers are they generally trust currently generally more trusting than maybe college age students. Yeah, you think probably. they're more cynical by I'd, then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a certain cynicism mm-hmm. in high school, also. Oh sure. Yeah. But I don't know. You. Yeah. It's, it's pretty 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 easy to overcome by competence. It's clear like that you, you know more comp- than a high schooler. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe if, that's harder by the time they're in college, college freshmen, or yeah. they're less willing to admit. When they're wrong. When they're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That might be because they're a fancy college kid. The, At least I was like that. Yeah. Anything else? Had to oh, repent. Okay. Uh, the second one, docility. Docility? 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 Anyway. The student ought to have the virtue of docility. Is that how you say that? Mm-hmm. Okay. He owes the teacher his capacity of being taught. We must allow ourselves to be taught. We can actually refuse this openness of our own free wills. This refusal is mostly a spiritual thing with roots of the profoundest sort in metaphysics and ethics. In the beginning, we only have a blank tablet, as Aristotle said, of our minds, but it is a brain we have and not just nothing. We can only discover something, even ourselves, by being first given something. So by giving, owes the teacher the capacity of being taught. Is that something that you want from your students? Oh, yeah. Is that something that you see some people resisting? But do they? Totally. I feel like at the beginning of the year, they don't owe that to me yet because I haven't earned it. Does that make sense? Mm. All of these seems like prerequisites before the student owes me something because I cannot give anything to them if they don't already have these. I think I think he's agreeing with your second point that they will not learn if they close off their mind. And so you can try and earn that in the beginning or they can just come in expecting, I will allow myself to be taught in this class. But even with that, like I don't think I... If the it's just a weird phraseology thing. Like I don't think they owe that to me until I can prove that I am worthy of those things, hmm. right? Does that make sense? Like I, I don't think they owe it to me just on the virtue of them sitting in my classroom. Like there there are I plenty of do. bad teachers out there, and yeah. in fact, docility you don't necessarily owe to them if they're going to teach you garbage and do it poorly and fill your mind with stuff that you know doesn't actually bear on anything. Yeah. Then you probably shouldn't be in that place if you like if a student genuinely believes all that, then they're probably in a bad environment, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. But that's why Graham said it's easy to overcome with competence, right? Competence in the teacher is, ah. is like, they don't owe that to me unless I am competent. And the only way I can prove I'm competent is by teaching. Yep. And so all of these seem like prerequisites for any owing of the student at all. I think you earn it by being in the position. I, I'd love to say that, but I think there are a lot of people in this position that do a poor job of it. 
The, the student figures out the game eventually if the teacher's playing some sort of game, right? Mm -hmm. Like if the teacher's just playing, fill the, out these forms and then we'll call it homework game, mm -hmm. then the student's going to realize. The like, I do what I want because I can't get fired game. The, the I do what I want because I can't get fired game. The student realizes, at least the clever student realizes that he's in a, um, he's in some sort of thing where the teacher's not there for them. So the student's not there for the teacher. They're both there to get whatever they get at the end of the year, which is teacher pay, student credentials, and then sort of off you go. Maybe. I think I think I, I, I learned things from teachers who were only there for the pay, and it was still stuff worth learning. Like, I don't know. If I have a math teacher who, like, is really just there, doesn't care about the students, but just wants to come in and leave at, every day, like... I don't know. You can still learn valuable things from them if I'm in an English but class. But in spite of the teacher. Sure. Yeah, I don't know mm. that I owe anything to them. Yeah. Right? I think especially because mm. what are they giving you except their contempt? Uh, an education. The topic. But the material. <laughs> but like, uh, uh, if they're getting paid to pass on the knowledge, even if they don't really care about it, it's still passing on knowledge. I don't That's know. True. I still think there's a value to being receptive to learning, even if they're a bad teacher. That doesn't mean that you should accept everything without question, but you should be open to the chance of learning. So maybe it's just, it's not necessarily owing it to the teacher, it's owing it to yourself, right? You owe yeah, it probably. to yourself to be receptive to the, I, it's, I'm just taking quality with fair. the phrasing. Of like course. that's all, yeah. it doesn't matter. It'd be boring if you didn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, I was gonna say, my, my opinions don't matter. We can move on if you want. <laughs> no, I'm going to bash you over the head till you agree with me. This always goes really well. Um, I... I don't know. I think a student chooses whether they make the class easy or hard for the teacher. Yes. And so even a bad teacher, like you don't need, you don't need to make their life miserable. I don't know. But it's so fun to do so. Okay. See, I'm not engaging that one. Okay. <laughs> so um, third is effort. The student owes to his teacher the effort of study. A good teacher ought to exercise a mild coercion on his students, a kind of pressure that takes into account their lethargy and fallenness and distractions a pressure that indicates that the professor wants the student to learn, lets them know it is important, a pressure that has the purpose of guiding the student through the actual thought process, the actual exercise of the mind and the matter at hand. Few students on being given the Republic of Plato or the Confessions of St. Augustine to read will bounce right up to their room, shut off their stereo, cancel a date, and proceed to ponder the eternal verities in these books. The teachers who assign such books, and a university in which they are not assigned has little claim to that noble name, Always must wonder, isn't that good? Always must wonder if the intrinsic fascination, the thinking through of such works will somehow reach into the student's mind. So student owes an effort, owes to his teacher the effort of study. So I might be willing to take on that one. The student owes it to himself, but again, it's the same. The If the teacher is going to like do well in the class, they need students who have done the work beforehand. So I don't know, I see that going both ways. Is this a thing that you want from your students? Yeah, you need to somehow let them know that this has currency for them. Mm -hmm. And that, that doesn't mean like, I'm bringing it down to the high school level. Look look at me, kids. We're going to talk about like your real life mm -hmm. I made Aristotle. Don I made Dante a meme, you dudes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, right. that's not what we mean. Um, but you need to show that, you sure need to show that how this has had currency for everybody else mm -hmm. and how they can be part of it. In, in many ways, I feel like, and this may be giving away a teacher trick, is um, doing it by saying it's hard and difficult and you're probably not going to get it and there's some amazing things in there. Um, and not, not doubting them, but just sort of saying like, it's really great and it, takes a lot of effort to get there it's and the old, you'll never make it trick. and i don't know if ever i don't know if, if people i don't i hope you guys have you know not that i would ever say it but it's just sort of the way that you treat the material as opposed to this is fun if you just like put your mind to it you'd have fun doing this it's more you're probably not going to have fun doing this right it's a lot of work there's some really great things in there and maybe only some of you are really gonna like really get into it and right. i feel like putting it that way you get way more kids being like well, i'll show you or like oh right. my goodness this must be amazing yeah um, it's not the the fun isn't the reason you read these books. No. They're, they teach you something. Like, yeah. they are worth reading. The yield, the harvest. Yeah. yeah. There is something in it that is worth knowing or experiencing or seeing. Mm -hmm. Again, 
Why do we read? We read to experience more than ourselves. And these books are worth reading because they are good experiences, mm-hmm. right? Is that, mm-hmm. This gets into the next chapter, uh, which I'll tell you what it's titled in a second. But uh, if to get a good grade, a student reads St. Augustine, well, terrific. But I'm also impressed by someone who reads St. Augustine and gets a D minus, but who five or 25 years later is still reading him. It takes all one's life to read St. Augustine. So the first dozen times through probably deserve a D minus anyhow. But that's what you're saying, right? That any of us reading a book for the first time, we haven't gotten the depth of that book. Yeah. So if a student says, oh my, I say, what was your favorite book this year? And they say, oh my goodness, Paradise Lost. I really love that book. And then, um, like, I just sort of know because of how difficult it is and how fast we go through it that students are not, they're not spending hours and hours and hours just really reading it over and over and over. They're doing the homework. They're not getting it. They're saying, Donald, don't explain it when we get to class. Mm-hmm. They go through it. But if they've left 10th grade with the feeling like, there are things there that I enjoyed. If I went back, I would find them again. Even if the next, if they went back to the book five, six, seven times, they didn't yield those things. You know, if you've left them with the feeling that there is good stuff here, that is way more formative than, oh yeah, I got an A in my Dante paper and off I go, you know? Uh, And I know Dante now. (laughs) Because even someone saying Paradise Lost is my favorite book, there's still so much more there for them yeah, yeah, the next yeah. time they go back to it. Like yeah. that's kind of exciting for them to end yes. the year. Like if they've been hooked by this first read through, then the third and fifth and 10th will be great. Or it's also now it's a, it's an engine. Now I've put inside them an engine that's going to drive itself. Like right. the, totally. cause they're not going to have me poking and prodding them and giving them and reading grades totally. to, to do it. And ta- having classes where I, I talk about it, like they, they're going to hopefully, and I maybe not even do it until they're older, but if they're left with the idea that in a book like Paradise Lost, there are amazing things mm-hmm. if I just have the wherewithal to like push through and find them. And that's and that's what he's getting at. Yeah. Like the reason to say a student owes this to the teacher, it's more, is more to say they will they are more likely to get to that point of appreciating the book and wanting to return to it if They've trusted the teacher. They've been willing to learn. They've put the effort in to read it. That's what that's what I think he's getting at here. Yeah. Do you agree that people who like actually do the work enjoy it more? The people who trust you, the people who are willing to learn. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. all. I'm, that's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So he wraps up what a student knows as teacher. Ultimately, teaching is an act of humility, as is learning. It is the realization that the highest things of which we possess, but the beginnings are to be known, can be known by each of us and ourselves, and none of us is the less in the learning. I like that. Okay. So that is what a student owes his teacher. So then our question is, what does a teacher owe the student? Does anyone want to guess what the answer to that is? It is the title of the next chapter and Graham, you're going to hate it. All A's. That's what we owe them, right? So they can... What is an A? What what thing is an A? <laughs> so that, that's so the they category can, of... Oh, like a, a grade. It's so a grade. They can, so they can go through it and that they... His Seriously? Ans- grades oh. is his answer. You don't like this. No, I, I don't like this. I think... I'm hoping to change your mind on this because I think he takes an interesting look at grades. Hmm. Is that a surprising answer? Here, to you? Okay. That is surprising. What what is a grade, Graham, since you're getting angry right now? What is a grade? Um Uh-huh. It's a loaded gun. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. Good talk. Okay. So, he asks this question a few times. Uh, So what is a grade? A grade is a measure of knowing and not knowing, to be sure. Grades are intended also to encourage challenge. There is a certain special sweet pleasure in getting a D minus in freshman composition and an A minus in advanced writing three years later. Does that not give you any, especially for you teaching sophomore year and senior year, isn't there some sweet joy in that? There is is a sweet joy when when everybody, when the the whole system is like working together. Mm -hmm. Uh, Grades are things not to worry about. That's the thing he says. Don't you? We agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good luck. Okay, good. Uh, he does tell, give, tell that to the, the parents of high schoolers that are eager to get them into difficult colleges. Ah, so just because you said that, I'll read this lovely section. So grades are uh, things not to worry about. Says who? Well, I do in a way. No one is in a university to get good grades, even though your grades may be your main concern or maybe the main concern of the good tuition payers back home. Your dear mother could probably care less what you actually do or learn in Shaw's rambling class to be sure, but she probably does care about whether you get a good grade. You see, such are the fates. She probably trusts Shaw's reports more than yours. What one actually does in Shaw's class is a mystery understood only by God. 
And then that's where he goes into the part about if you get a D minus, but you keep reading St. Augustine, you have succeeded. Yes. So he agrees with that. Uh, another snarky comment. What's a grade? A grade can also be the measure of a university's insecurity. If the course content or methods are not exactly like the big name schools, therefore, some think there is something wrong. I suspect I suspect there is something more wrong if the school's content always if the school's contents are always are just like those of the well-known schools. So yeah, measure of insecurity. He talks about grade inflation at this point. So if all the grades given are really high, what the grade becomes a measure of the university wanting their kids to look good. So yep. that's something you would agree with, right? Yes. Okay. So, but what is like the good reason? That's what, what I mean when I say great, you know, it, it's good when, when everybody's working, everyone's singing from the same hymnal. Yeah. So there are problems with grades. He's acknowledging those. But eventually, all comes back to the same thing. A grade is a teacher's judgment of a student's objective accomplishment compared to what the said student ought to accomplish. The purpose of a grade, I suppose, to get back to the story that I didn't read you at the beginning, is to enable the student to pass from uncertainty to certainty, from insecurity to security about himself, to feel confident on an objective basis that he knows more or less than he is expected to know. By ourselves, we do not know this. And I would agree with that. Okay. I would agree with that if people didn't think, if everything wasn't riding so much on it. Because if, if really you could say uh, an A is reserved for some sort of level of competency that you rarely see as a teacher, mm-hmm. and um, C's and B's were, um, B's were, you know, reserved for, you know, your sort of general good competency and C's were... C's and D's were, yeah, this was an, an honest first pass. Mm-hmm. Then I feel like th- th- that makes sense. And if and if the student sort of took that and saw it as a reflection of their understanding of the subject matter, that's all well and good. But then when you sort of have what we now have where everything is sort of packaged and writing on that, um, then you've got people who are, then you, you know, you have a system where everyone's um, splitting hairs between a 93 and a 94 because sure. so much seems to be riding on on that difference, and that that that's that's a disheartening game to be a part of. Yeah, he. So I don't, I don't. Yeah, so to give me, so I know I, I I come across as like the one who hates grades, but they're they are useful in exactly what he says, and he's sort of taking the like the intended um, reason why they existed, right. as opposed to sort of the the industry that it's become. So just to speak to the industry, this is from the opening of this essay, which I didn't read before. Aristotle, as we know, suggested that we ought not to expect more certitude of a science than it is capable of yielding. In Aristotle's sober words, in studying the subject, ethics, we must be content if we attain as high a degree of certainty as the matter of it admits. Recently, I came across a syllabus for a course, a very good syllabus, incidentally, of a colleague of mine, who announced in his prospectus that 10% of a student's grade would be based on class discussion, 40% on the tests, and 50% on the term paper. I envy such clarity, but I always have been reluctant to give such statistics to students who ask me how I arrive at a grade. And he goes on from there. Um, He talks about how, like, computers want to be able to analyze if you're a good student or not, and that's not the purpose of a grade. So... So is he saying that the grade is just the teacher's um, general sense as to how good the student has done to or how competent the student is or how uh, his objective measures of the students? What was the phrase that he used? Are you saying this guy wants to spitball it and just sort of like for myself? I think a professor needs to know how a student writes, how he reads, how he speaks, how he responds on his feet, as it were. The professor needs to know about the student's diligence and thoroughness. This takes some time. It is a human thing. As I mentioned in the previous essay, students also grade teachers in most universities, something most administrators take relatively seriously. But it also takes students' time as well as trust to know their teachers. Yeah. I mean, then that kind of system I get behind. Because, and and mm-hmm. yet he advocates not for, for small classes? classrooms? Yeah. 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 That, that, How do those two jive? It doesn't have to be the professor who's grading those things. A lot of classes have like TAs and stuff. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, but then um, we're but then we're relegating the to the TA to trust like someone who clearly knows less about the material to tr- yeah, to maybe. evaluate how well a student's doing. You just need to have good TAs. I'm I'm behind if you have people who know who people who are know the the content and live the content and and in many senses love the content and, and teach it well, being the ones the gatekeepers that say this student is at this level of competency. And this student's at this level, and this student's at this level. Yep. That I get behind. What he talks about with, like, breaking it down into percentages and, then, and a computer, it, I mean, eventually we're going to have one day where we're going to have drones hovering above the classroom, sure. like, taking retinal scans of students to see how much their 
class participating with their attention, you know, and then, yeah. then, then, then we'll, they'll get these auto generated, you know, AI grades. And, um, he, he, and he, he has this part portion where he's talking about how, like, he doesn't know what a 93.7 means or what a 78.4 <laughs> means. Yeah. And that's when he has that quote, eventually all comes back to the same thing. A teacher's judgment of a student's objective accomplishment compared to what the student ought to accomplish, which I think you would agree is what, you want from a grade yes okay so and that's and that's again why do i like james shawl he he speaks clearly and like sanely on these topics things that we care about things that we want to like do well at the school and he was thinking about this 30 years ago or whatever so so pause is he saying grades should be individualized for each student is it what he ought to accomplish or what any student ought to accomplish in that classroom he says uh, relative to what the student would accomplish so obje- objective accomplishment compared to what the student the student w- ought to accomplish. But if I am say an employer, mm-hmm. that grade does not help me at all nope. because he doesn't care. It'll be this kid could be dumb as a brick and he did pretty good for dumb <laughs> as a brick. But I don't want to hire dumb as a brick. I want to hire someone yeah, totally. competent. So again, if what is being measured is a combination of how he reads, how he speaks, how he responds on his feet, his diligence and his thoroughness. You would want someone who's diligent and thorough, even but, if you can't read well. But that's relative to the student's innate capacity rather than an objective standard. Mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I guess I'm arguing for objective standards here. He where, says objective accomplishments. So it is based on their writing, on their reading. But objective accomplishments relative to what the student ought to accomplish, not to what all students mm-hmm. ought to accomplish. Like, yeah. And just to make this clearer, like I have a... You know, we have an idea of what we, what kind of writing we want students to accomplish here mm-hmm. in Veritas. And yep. we don't individualize that for the student. We say, this is our standard. Yep. And if you don't meet it, you don't meet it. And we give grades accordingly. We don't, we don't change that standard independent of where the student innately falls. Totally agree. Cut this out if you don't want to include it. The best thesis this year was a non-top grade student who, despite like um, not having to memorize it, still memorized it and performed her thesis. Like that was the best thesis this year. And, um, anyway, like, and so like relative to her, it's awesome, but it wasn't the top 16. And so like, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the squishiness of these numbers because again, from Shaw's perspective, grades aren't for the employer. Grades aren't for the computer to like make you uh, a cog in a machine. It's to say it's a measure of competence. It's a measure. It's a reflection on, did you actually like do your best in this class? So, so you're, you, we, to, to give grades the way that he would want us to give them, it would necessitate a, a system shift an inherent, mm-hmm. like structural system shift about the way that we treat grades. Yeah. And I, and I keep thinking the, the answer, the, the answer grades is to what does a student, what does a teacher owe his student? And so, I think even in talking about student uh, about systems, we're abstracting it too much. It's mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. we in our classrooms owe to our students to give them that that feeling, that reflection of their competence from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And that's and if someone gets mad at you for giving them a C, like that's the fight you get to have. Right. But I still think it's a conversation worth having. So anyway, that's um, all this to say. I think Shaw again writes clearly. He speaks to topics that uh, are the intersection of. Um, uh, classics and education and he himself is Catholic. So religion gets brought in there as well. Um, his writing is delightful. I, he writes, as you can tell differently from CS Lewis, but it just makes me think of Lewis and that it's just a treat to read. I sat down yesterday to prepare for this episode, expecting it would take 30 minutes and I just got swept away and three hours later, I was still reading. Um, Mm. I find him delightful. I'll, I'll end with this quote from the first things, uh, article on his death for some further reading. If anyone's interested. You know Spy Wednesday as a part of Holy Week? Had you ever heard of this before? Spy, Spy Wednesday? Wednesday? That I sounds ne- amazing. I'd never heard of this before. So it's, Do we all carry small guns? <laughs> I wish. So Spy Wednesday? Spy Wednesday is Where the day seems? before Maundy Thursday, as you can tell from it being a Wednesday. Um, so it's not a cell. It's the remembrance of when um, uh, Jesus was, or when um, Judas, like, left the mm-hmm. meal. The Last Supper yeah, to go get his money. Yeah, so that's Spy Wednesday. It's called that. Okay, so although he left us at age 91 on Spy Wednesday, slipping away as quietly as Judas from the Last Supper, in an irony he would not fail to appreciate, Shaw remains present to us in his prolific writing, in classically rooted words which breathe his learned spirit and provide many courses on Ignatian adaptability on first principles to the storms of our ever-changing world. Famed for providing appendices to his books which list with, with lists of other books he wanted to share with readers, giving, giving them titles like Shaw's Five Books to Stay Sane, 
he is he now deserves his own list. So here I offer at the end of this reflection on the life of my brother Jesuit, three shawl books to stay holy for first things readers and listeners to classical stuff you should know. Another sort of learning, which is the one I've been reading from, on the lessons students teach us, the life of the mind on forming ourselves to think critically, and on the unseriousness of human affairs. Hmm. And yeah, so that is his Father Shaw, who's been cool, very influential cool. to me. Well, this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. If you want to give us a grade on this podcast, <laughs> yes, you can email <laughs> us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. They should be relative to what you think right. each of us <laughs> Take as, into consideration yeah. what you think our actual capacities are, yeah. and then grade us whether or not you think we attained to the height of those capacities or not. Yeah. Um, if you just want to tweet at us, you can tweet at us at classicalstuff at, at classicalstuff, C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff. And I will like and retweet or um, give Unlike you... Unlike and untweet? Yes. I don't know, I don't know how Twitter works. Um, <laughs> and you can find us at classicalstuff.net where you can see uh, the back episodes and um, we have one hidden Easter egg on mm-hmm. our website True. that I'm sure only a few have found. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the, old sc- in the old school version of like... Are you giving internet, it away? Don't give it away. Just saying internet 1.0, like there we have Easter eggs on our website. <laughs> yeah, I don't think good. people do that anymore, but we do. Um, and, um, yeah, and I'm thinking about, thinking about grades, maybe. Good. This is the thing you think about. In I there. have to, and the thing is I have to grade when yeah. I get home. Well, grade accurately. <laughs> Was that helpful? <laughs> Good. I, I have my objective standard that everyone must hit. Maybe you I just guess. feel a little easier spitballing it and say, ah, for this kid, that's <laughs> ah, an A. Their heart's in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good. There you go. Um, anyway. Yeah. So thanks for listening. And, um, yeah, give, send, us, send us that grade. I'm actually okay, kind of curious That's to see what we get. Please oh, don't. please no. No, yeah, do seriously. it. We need the rubric, though. It's except, not fair. Except don't. <laughs> Stop. No rubric. There's no <laughs> rubric in life. All right. Well, this is, Cla- this is Thomas, AJ, and Graham signing off, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.